All right, well, we have made it to Luke chapter 20. So we're coming to the close of the Gospel of Luke. We still have a few more weeks in it with Christmas. It'll probably be a good four or five weeks, I imagine, before we finish. Uh, but we are making our way. We're in the last week of Jesus' life. And um, tonight we're going to see Jesus at odds with corrupt leaders. Now, we've seen him have um, kind of conflicts the whole way through. But chapter 20 is like the climax of all of these um, conflicts. Because um, we may read of the scribe here or the Pharisees. Um, but now what we're going to see tonight is that he... Um, runs up against uh, the representatives of the Sanhedrin. So it's an altogether different kind of a challenge. And we'll explain, um, I mentioned those, those different categories of uh, leaders in Israel. We'll kind of take slow down and look at each of them. Uh, so you can take some notes and write them down. We'll talk about what the Sanhedrin uh, was. Um, but we're going to see him just in confrontation. And, you know, uh, what I would encourage you to do is just think about Planning your trip to, to, to earth if you were the Lord. And knowing that your creation was going to stand with their puny little finger and their puny little minds and they were going to challenge you. I mean, none of us like to have those kind of confrontations. We seek to avoid them. And, and yet here comes the Lord, how he has humbled himself to deal with um, People, as we're going to see in this chapter, but man, how grateful we are that he came and he is willing to humble himself to deal with people like us and to, to offer us redemption. So Luke 20, 1 through 47, we'll see if we get through the whole chapter, but Jesus at odds with the corrupt leaders. And just to kind of set it up a little bit, let's, let's back up into verse 45 of chapter 19. Then he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him. And were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Chapter 20. Now it happened on one of those days as he taught in the temple and preached the gospel, that the chief priests and the scribes, together with the elders, confronted him and spoke to him, saying, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? Uh, could you imagine how Jesus could have answered that question? All the, the, the ways he could have uh, spoke in our corrupt little minds can think of some pretty amazing ways. You know, of how he could have revealed himself, the kinds of things he could have done to them, the kinds of things. I mean, and, and yet he's just sitting there listening patiently to these. But he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. And Jesus said to them, yeah, then the conversation is over. I'm not talking to you either. Uh, neither will I tell you by what authority 
I do these things. When Jesus came and he's there cleansing the temple, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. And they can't even see it. The authority for him to do this, of course, is he is the creator of the universe and he is sent by the Father to do those things that the Father has told them to do, which the prophets foretold. Malachi 3, 1-3 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So he talked to them about John the Baptist, and there was one that was coming to prepare the way. And he will come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, and whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. That would have been a great verse for them to have contemplated, wouldn't it? I mean, especially when he said, well, let me ask you a question. What about John the Baptist? I, I don't know that the Lord had Malachi 3, 1 through 3 in his mind, but it's almost like he, even though he's challenging them with a question, if they, if they would have allowed their hearts, these were like the most brilliant men on the earth when it came to the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. They knew them, and yet they were so far from them. They couldn't put two and two together. The vehicle, or the temple was being used as a vehicle to rip off the worshipers. It was being used as a shortcut to cut from one side of the city to the other, literally speaking. They were actually ripping people off, and they were actually using it as a shortcut to get from one side of the city to the other. In other words, they wanted to use this as just to make it a little easier for their life. Um, If you've been to Jerusalem, you can understand why they would want to cut across because it's up and down. And, you know, to cut across the temple was a nice flat area. It would have cut off a lot of walking. And and so it it just made life easier. But that's not what the temple was for. The temple wasn't there just to be a shortcut. It was meant to be a place of worship. It was not meant to be a place to rip people off. It was meant to be a place to bring people into communion. And so Jesus is there and he is challenging them and he is teaching them each day in this last week of his life. And that's where we are. We are in the last week of Jesus' life. And so they question uh, Jesus' authority. And, and we read a few here. We read of the chief priests. We read of the scribes. Um, we, we read of the elders. Um, just a few verses earlier up in chapter 19. Um, we are also familiar with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So who are all of these groups of people? Now, the one thing that's a little frustrating, actually, when you try to go and study this, is a lot of their writings are no longer in existence, so nailing down exactly who they are becomes a bit of a challenge because you don't have a lot of their writings to, uh, to read. So we have portions and, and pieces of, of information. But let's begin with um, the chief priests. The chief priests, these are the high priests. It's the high priests and those who formerly held that position. Of course, in this time, it was bought and sold. Also, other dignitaries from the high priest, um, uh, from whom the high priest would be selected. So it was kind of a special group of family. Um, It was kind of like a family-owned and operated business. 
at this time. But th- th- this is who the chief priests are. Notice the plural. Um, you know, the chief priest would have been the high priest. And so the chief priest include the, includes the high priest and others as well. And so uh, it was the highest office and there was a lot of power that was there. So that's who the chief priests are. The scribes are the experts in the law. Um, mainly, these would have been the Pharisees. Okay, So they are those that gave them, them, themselves entirely over to studying the law. And they often would be called upon to be advisors to the Sanhedrin, which is a ruling body we'll talk about in just a moment. But they would advise them because these were the guys that were technical. These were the lawyers. You know, they really could um, pull, call upon not just the scriptures, but also the oral tradition. Um, and so that's who they were. Um, that's all they did was study the law. Um, then the elders are the lay nobility of Israel, men who were head of a tribe or a tribal division. That could include both Pharisees and Sadducees again. So sometimes when you refer to an elder, it could be somebody that was also a Pharisee or a Sadducee. Um, But there was the lay nobility of Israel, men who were the head of a tribe or a tribal division. The Sadducees were the aristocratic class who oversaw everything to do with the temple. So, any, the running of the temple fell under their jurisdiction. Now, the Sadducees are interesting. They didn't believe in the resurrection or the afterlife. We're going to see that tonight. They didn't believe that God was actively um, uh, working in the lives of men. They're like deists of, you know, kind of like a Thomas Jefferson view of God. They didn't believe it was actively working and moving. Um, and they didn't believe in angels or demons. You can reference Acts 23, verse 8. And so the Sadducees, uh, Josephus says of the Sadducees, they were rude, arrogant, power hungry, and quick to dispute with those who disagreed with them. And so that's who we see um, as we go through this. The Pharisees was a middle class of leaders from the synagogue who were primarily concerned with piety. They emphasized the oral law and the written law. They were all about keeping the 600 laws Found in the, the scriptures. Oh, one other thing about the Sadducees. They only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. Only the writings of Moses. That's, they didn't care for the rest. Uh, so the Pharisees. They um, were the ones that were worried about how you washed your hands. They were worried about, you know, all of those details. Um, so it was a conservative group of leaders. And they were concerned with the tradition of the nation. Um, and then... There was a group of, that kind of governed. So you would have many of all of these people. But then there was a group that was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a governing authority of 71 men in Israel. And a lot of you think 71 or 70. Well, it's 70 plus the high priest. So you had 70 men that would have been made up of those groups we just went through. Uh, the chief priests, the um, elders, the scribes, remember the elders could be both Pharisees and Sadducees. So this is who made up the Sanhedrin. There would be 70 of them plus the high priest. And they would be those that would hear legal matters and they would come to conclusion of what they were going to do. 
Uh, Paul, of course, appeared before them. Uh, Jesus was uh, uh, before the Sanhedrin, um, at least if you know, they, they were contemplating what they were going to do with them. So they, they, they dealt with these types of issues. So that kind of is just a, a real brief breakdown of these different groups. And Jesus is being challenged, we see there in verse 2, by these different leaders. The power brokers in Israel asked Jesus what makes him think he can challenge the way things are being done. If you note, actually, in um, verse 1, it says, He taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and the scribes together with the elders. And the article, the, being there, is um, it's an emphasis on a special group of them. So probably um, you had a specific group of these that had come from the Sanhedrin, and this was a formal inquiry that was being made. So this isn't just a, a you know, you know, one guy that just couldn't take Jesus' teaching anymore that just spoke out. No, this is very deliberate. And the Sanhedrin appears to be represented in this contingency that has come and is saying, we're the power brokers, where'd you get your power from? And um, so he's being interrogated by them. Um, he had turned the tables. He was teaching against them. He was calling them a bunch of rip-off artists. Uh, they were corrupted and perverted the ways of the Lord. And, and the people knew it. Uh, the people knew it. As they heard it, they were in there and they were watching all these things going on. And they wanted to grab Jesus and they wanted to kill him right uh, then and there. But they saw that everybody was wanting to hear. So they, they felt very limited in what they could do. But they're plotting. They're figuring it out. They are working hard to kill Jesus. And before this week is over, they're going to do it. So that's the kind of, when they come, these are the murderers. These are the ones that are coming to, to see Jesus put to death. <laughs> Who are you? And where does your authority come from? Well, I'm God in the flesh. I'm the one that created you. I'm the one that holds this universe together. I'm the one that um, you're going to answer to one day. I'm the one that you say that you're waiting for, but you are not. And so Jesus, I'm not going to answer your question until you answer my question. And where is John the Baptist from? What do you think? Who is he? Was he from heaven? Did God send him? Or was he just a man that was on his own? Now, they didn't receive him. They didn't believe him. They didn't like what he had to say because he also challenged them, right? When they came out to see him. And, you know, he, he says, you know, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? They didn't like him either. And he didn't like them. So they, they certainly did not um, want to say, well, oh, yeah, John was sent from heaven. Because if they would have said that John was sent from heaven, what was John's primary job? Jo John's job was to be what? A forerunner for the Messiah. John had announced, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If they acknowledged that John was sent from the Lord, then the Lord had acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one that had come to redeem them. And so Jesus was very clever at the question he put back to them, and yet they were unwilling to answer. And so Jesus says, all right, that's fine. I'm not going to play this game with you. 
and, um, and he moves on. Moving into verse 9 through 18, we're going to get a parable on the rejection of God's only son. It's, it's, to me, it's one of the most intense parables that Jesus gives because of the setting, knowing that the timing, the context is he's about to be crucified. So let's read this whole section in one reading here. Then he began to tell the people this parable. And you'll see it as we go. These guys are still there. <laughs> All right. The, the scribes and, and, and the elders and um, these that have come, the chief priests, they're all still there. A certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country for a long time. And maybe I'll just say this right at the beginning just to help as we, as we read this. Um, uh, the messengers are the prophets. The son is Jesus. The vine dressers are the religious leaders. And of course, the owner is, is God of the vineyard. So a certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, and went to a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him, think of Isaiah, and sent him away empty-handed, think of Jeremiah. And he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. This is Jesus, right? Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers, the religious leaders, saw him, they reasoned among themselves saying, this is the heir. Come let us kill him that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, certainly not. They got it. They understood this parable. Then he looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So they're coming. They want to destroy him. Jesus knows this. He knows their heart. He knows their intentions. And he says, you guys, you always reject what God wants to do. He sends to you prophet after prophet after prophet. And you abuse them and you don't hear him and you don't welcome them in. And now the Lord has sent his son and you have plans to kill him. And they knew that he claimed to be the son of God. And Jesus was calling them out. We're going to find that, you know, they understand that this is, um, that he's talking to them and he's writing about them. Look at verse 19. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him. But they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. Jesus is it's, it's ready, aim, fire, and he nails them in such a way that everybody gets it. It would have been a powerful rebuke among these who have come to question and challenge the authority of Jesus. He says, I'm not going to answer your questions, but I do have something to say about you. You guys are a bunch of murderers. You guys reject God. You guys reject the Son of God. You reject all the prophets that he sent. This is who you are. Make no mistake about it. The, 
the illustration of the vineyard is one that they would have understood well. Um, I'm not going to read it, but just turn with me into the Old Testament to Isaiah real quickly. And, and you can just you can take the time to go read it on your own. But um, in Isaiah chapter 5, as a prophet spoke, um, I'll just read a couple of verses. Isaiah 5 verse 1. Now let me sing to my beloved a, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up, he cleared out its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between, uh, please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard? And so he goes on. So for Jesus to talk about the vineyard, these guys, they were locking in. They knew that it was a reference to the nation of Israel, and they knew that they were the vine dressers. They fully got it, and they fully understood it, and this simply infuriated them. He got to the place where he says, what do you think the owner of the vineyard is going to do when he finds out that his son has been killed? He's going to take it, and he's going to give it to another. And they said, certainly not. At this point, the idea that the, that the vineyard could be given to somebody else, that the kingdom of God, what God was wanting to do, could be placed in somebody else's hands was, was well beyond it. Now, what are we to mean, what are we to understand by this? Are they thinking that the care of Israel will be given to other leaders among the nation? They wouldn't tolerate that. Are they thinking that the care of the nation... Or the work of God, the kingdom of God will be given to the Gentiles. It's not apparent immediately that that could be a possibility. So that, that might be an outside thought. However, we do read something that speaks of this very issue. It's hanging on that metaphor of agriculture. Um, turn with me over to Romans chapter 11. Because Paul digs in deep in Romans chapter 11. And, and talks about what has happened to the nation of Israel. Whether Jesus was referring to just other leaders, the leaders of the last days who will, who will finally call upon Jesus and recognize him and welcome the Messiah at his second coming, or he's referring to what we're going to read here in Romans chapter 11. Both of them are true. And, and so in Romans 11, I want to read a, a good portion of this chapter. Because if you've never read this before, you've never seen this. I think it's such a, a critical piece to understand in light of that parable that Jesus just gave. So verse 11, I say then, has God cast away his people? They're Israel, right? Has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So even though nationally Israel rejected Jesus, there is a remnant and there has always been a remnant among 
the chosen people of God, um, and, and they, they're among that 7,000, if you will. There are more than 7,000, but they're among that 7,000 that the Lord responds to Elijah and says, listen, I've got my people. Well, he has a people. Paul says, I'm one of them. I'm one of those that are in that remnant. Verse 6, and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Verse 7, Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And I would say, and to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and recompense. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world, so if we take Jesus' parable and he says, I'll give it to another. So if their rejection of Jesus has opened it up for a guy like me and probably a lot of guys and gals like you that are not Jews to come to salvation, that's his point. I mean, a lot of people, what blessing has come to the world? How much more their fullness? If their rejection of, the, of Jesus has resulted in the Gentiles being saved, then what's going to happen when Israel gets saved? So God's not done with them, and we're going to see this so clearly. There are a lot who say that God is finished with Israel nationally. Still, Jews get saved individually, but nationally they're not. But that's not Paul's focus here. Paul's already, he's talking about the whole nation. He's already makes reference to the individual and the remnant piece. Verse 13 of chapter 11. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is a reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are, all, are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, you Gentiles, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. All the blessings that you know, go back in their history are, are, are now ours. The, the promises and the covenants, as Paul speaks of. Do not boast against the branches. But if you boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. Kind of out on a limb, maybe you could say. You will say, then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fail, severity, but toward you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in, 
For God is able to graft them, Israel, in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, so you were this wild thing that, that, that's out there, and he brought you in, how much more will those who are natural branches, Israel, be grafted into their own olive tree? And here it is, verse 25, underline it. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. A mystery is a truth that was previously unknown. So here's something that was unknown. I want you to know this, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that the blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And that day is going to come. The day is going to come when the fullness of the Gentiles is done, and I would say that's going to happen at the rapture of the church, when God is finished primarily working among the nations. And in those last seven years, that 70th week that's meant for their prophecy, when he begins to draw them back to himself, he's going to be working in them. And it's going to, we know when they're going to make this confession. When, when did you make the confession of Jesus? Where were you? How old were you? What town was it? What was going on in your life? We know when they're going to make the confession. You know, some actually say that all, you know, Jews are, are, are saved and they don't even need to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They're just saved. That's nonsense. That is not biblical at all on any level. Old Testament, New Testament. But some will, will say this. No, they've got to make the same confession that you and I made. And actually, in well, we read that, that if you confess with your mouth, if you go back and read it, it's talking about the nation of Israel. They've got to make the same confession that you made. Now, Jesus, we studied last week, said, you will see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that is Jesus of Nazareth. We need you to save us. When they say that, they're going to be saved. And all Israel will be saved. Who's that? All the remaining that have made it through the tribulation will be saved at that time. So those who say that God is done with Israel, um, you know, in a permanent sense, they, I, they just, I don't know. I don't even know what you begin to do with Romans chapter 11. I would hate to hold that theological position and try and have to deal with Romans chapter 11. Because it's, I mean, verse 25 makes it so clear. God is not finished with them. Go ahead and finish reading it and studying it on your own. But Jesus is saying to them, hey, the Father's going to come. What do you think he's going to do? He's going to give it to somebody else. He's like, no way. God, God won't do that. Well, in one sense, he's not going to completely do that. But in another sense, that's what has happened for the last 2,000 years. God has worked primarily among the Gentile nations. But praise the Lord for the work that is happening among the Jews in the days in which we live. And those that are coming to faith. And so we can rejoice in that. So Jesus says, listen, there, there's a prophecy about you guys. And that, you know, you're going to reject the stone and this is going to grind you to powder. And Jesus is that chief cornerstone. He is that one that was prophesied that would come and would be that the centerpiece of the nation. So one they 
said they were waiting for, and yet when he actually came, they didn't want it. Psalm 118, 22 and 23 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. So they, they, they rejected him. But you know, they are not the only generation of men and women to have rejected Jesus. And it's not just Jews that reject Jesus as the Messiah. People reject Jesus every single day. The gospel goes to them. Maybe you're listening to this right now. Maybe you're hearing my voice that Jesus is the redeemer and he is the savior of the world. That you must put your your faith and trust in him in order to be saved. And he's come to this earth and he has come to make that proclamation. And you've rejected that. You're like, I'm not ready for it. I don't want it. I don't believe it. Well, you're just like them. You are just like them. He has come and you have said, no, thank you. I don't want what you're offering. I pray that is not the case. Have you received the Lord? Have you welcomed Jesus as the chief cornerstone of your life? Do you know that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, and that it's in him and him alone that there is life, eternal life? Then pinch yourself because you're among a very few people in the history of the world that has come to that conclusion. Jesus said, few are those that find salvation. I want, if, if you have this thought in your mind to be just kind of playing with the Lord, you're not real serious about the things of the Lord. You're just, you've kind of settled into this, well, you know, I used to be on fire for the Lord, but man, I'm not really on fire now. And I'm just going to kind of ride it out until all this is done. Time out. Think of this. You are among a rare number of people that have ever come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the elders, and the Sanhedrin could not come to that conclusion. And yet God in his mercy has shown you and opened your eyes to see. How can we do anything but to just say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, and Lord, I'm going to follow you with all that I have. To reject the Lord, the consequences are grave, is to be ground to powder, is to lose not only life during life, but is to lose the hope of salvation in the next life and to be separated from him in the lake of fire. Not a good option. Let's move on. Verses 19 through 26, we go to the next scene where we continue to see, you know, kind of round three of of the conflict. And we read, And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous. How do they know that? Because they're terrible spies. That's how. I mean, we're reading that they sent spies. That was not a very successful, successful spy mission, was it? So probably when they showed up, everybody went, We know you. You're the spies, right? So he had people watching him, trying to catch him and to mess up. And they might seize him on his words in order to deliver him him to the power and the authority of the governor. Then they asked him, saying, Teacher, we know that you say and teach rightly, and you do not show personal favoritism. But teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? 
But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, why do you test me? Show me a denarius. Give me a coin. Whose image and inscription does it have? And they answered and said, oh, we didn't anticipate you doing that. (laughs) Uh, Caesar's. That would have been a very quiet, choked out name, by the way. It's, it's, it's Caesar's. And he said to them, Render, therefore, to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. But they could not catch him in his words in the presence of the people. And they marveled at his answer and kept silent. They're like, man, we can't get this guy. This guy's sharp. He's from Nazareth. But he's, he's outsmarting all of us. The question that they ask is one of devotion. It's a question of loyalty. Who are you loyal to, Jesus? Are you loyal to Rome or are you loyal to God? Now, their thought was, no matter what he answers, we've got him. We've got him. Because if he says that he is loyal, or if he says, Give it, pay your taxes, then he's loyal to Rome, the people are going to hate him. If he says... Give it to God, then Rome's going to hate him. These are greedy, power-hungry men trying to kill Jesus. And you know what the amazing thing is? The world is going to do that again the next time he comes. Can Can you believe that? The first time they came, the world said, let's kill him. Rome and Israel joined together and said, let's kill him. But when he comes back a second time, The world is going to say, let's kill him. Revelation 19, verse 19. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And if you have any doubts that mankind would ever do that, then all you need to do is think of the crucifixion. They've already done it. And when he comes again, they're going to do it again. They're going to be led by the Antichrist to try and put him to death. So they have this gotcha question. Israel was under the heavy labor of Rome. They had a ground tax of 10% 10 of all the grain that they they brought in, 10%. 20% of all the the wine and fruit. Income tax was 1%. I don't know. I kind of read this and I think, I might want to be uh, under the thumb of Rome. Because that sounds a lot better than what I'm doing. And then they paid a poll tax, um, which was a denarius, and they paid, both men and women paid, you know, a day's wage. And I don't recall how often they had to pay that. But, uh, you know, so th- this is what it is. But, but the problem was Rome was in there. They had their uh, troops all over the place, and they were taking from them. And, of course, it was only lining the pockets of Rome. It wasn't helping out the nation in any way. At least if you pay taxes to your own country, it goes back to your country. But in this case, it was just gone. So they had a deep resentment to all of the taxes. And they, they were used to handing over the denarius. You know, that's what the amount they had to pay for that poll tax. And so the question was formulated and put to them. There was another group of, of uh, Jews in Israel And they were known as the zealots. The zealots were those that carried around knives. And they were always ready for the rebellion. They often tried to instigate things. Um, And so 
the zealots, I mean, if they would have heard Jesus come out and say, yes, I believe in paying the taxes, he would have not only had just the general population, but then he would have been the target of, of the, uh, the zealots as well. Um, if Jesus says, no, don't, don't pay taxes, then Rome is going to count him as a revolutionary. So how does he possibly answer this? And so he answers it by saying, you got a coin? They go, yeah, we've got a coin. He goes, whose image is on it? It's Caesar's. The very fact that they are able to pull a coin out and say Caesar's image is on there, it already speaks to the fact that they've bought into the whole process. They're using Roman coinage. They're already using it. You're already involved in this whole system. Don't act like you're innocent here because you've got the Roman coins. And his image is there. All right, well, that's his, that's his face, right? Then give it back to him if he asks for it. It was hypocrisy. And not only was it hypocrisy in that they were using these coins and then trying to get him to say that they shouldn't you know, be involved in this whole system, they often were in cahoots with the Romans and lining their pockets. So, I mean, their hypocrisy was great. And, and the people that would have been around there would have certainly known that this was the case. But then he says, I'll tell you what you need to do. Give Caesar the things that are his. Seems like he's got his face on that piece of metal there. Give it to him. But, you know, the things that are God's, give them to him. And so he is able to answer this in such a way that they, they don't get the traction that they want. But the real point here is be loyal to the Lord. We should be loyal to the Lord. Romans 6.13 says, Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. We are to live out a righteous life. My hands, my feet, my eyes, my mouth, my mind. These are all dedicated to the Lord. To walk in righteousness. They're meant to be specific ways by which I can give God glory. In Romans 12.1 it says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So we, we give ourselves, not just to individual members, our entire body is to be turned over to the Lord. Lord, what do you want to do with my life? You know, I've heard it said, and I believe it's true, it's a lot easier to die for the Lord than to live for the Lord. Dying for the Lord takes one second. Living for the Lord takes a whole lifetime. And each and every day we must choose to live for the Lord and follow the, the, that, that commandment to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Lord, here it is. It's, how do you want to consume this life today? Because a, a sacrifice, listen, it died. When you went to the temple at the sacrifice, it was not coming out alive. It might come out as a mill, but it's not coming out alive. Flesh died in the temple every single day, all day long, in worship of God. And if we're going to live for the Lord, then we must take up that cross and we must deny ourselves. 
a living sacrifice? How is it that you've been consumed lately to the honor and the glory of the Lord, which only makes sense? It's the reasonable thing to do. The unreasonable thing to do is to guard yourself and protect yourself and protect your time from God and protect your money and your talents and your resources your thoughts, your creativity. This is mine. That is the most unreasonable thing you can do. The most reasonable thing you can do is say, Lord, consume my life for your purposes. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. That those who live, that would be us, should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Some pretty sound logic. Jesus died for you, now live for him. Don't live for yourself. We should not live for ourselves. We should be living for the Lord. And, and, and what's the first phrase of this verse, verse 14? For the love of Christ compels us. And isn't that really at the heart of the whole matter? When we don't want to live for him, it's because we are not compelled in love to do so. We're compelled by selfishness to live for ourselves and do what we want to do. But the Lord wants us to live for him because he died for us. It makes sense. It compels us. You died for me so that I wouldn't have to pay the penalty of my sin. You, God, sent your only son to take on human flesh that he might be crucified for my sin. And you want me to live for you? Well, I'm compelled to live for you because of your love for me. Of course I'm going to do this. I will no longer live for myself, but I will live for you. And that's what Jesus is driving at. Render to God the things that are God's. Well, what's God's? You. You are God's. Your life. And all that it represents. All of the things that I mentioned. Your, your time, your energy, your resources, your creativity, your everything about you. It's God's. The only regret we're going to have in heaven on this subject is that we did not give more to God. Nobody's going to be in line that's like, wow, I really overdid it. You know, I can't believe that. I could have like done a few other things, but nobody's going to say that in heaven. You're going to be standing in line and you're going to be thinking, why did I do, why did I live for that stupid thing? And, you know, and here's the deal. The stupid thing may not even be sinful. It's just a consuming thing of your life that keeps you from being able to do these things. I don't know what it is. You know what it is. Let the Lord speak to you if indeed there is even anything. How about this verse from the New Living Translation? Revelation 4.11. You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created everything, and it is for your pleasure that they exist and were created. You exist for the pleasure of God. Well, I don't like that. I don't like the idea that he would make me for his pleasure. Well, you don't have to live for him. It's just not advisable to not do that. He's giving you a free will. If you don't want to do this, you don't have to. But the Lord is worthy 
to receive the glory from our life. He's worthy to receive the honor from our life, how we live it. He's worthy to receive the power, whatever perceived power is to say, Lord, it's yours. Everything we have is yours. You created everything and we exist for you. He made you for himself. Now here's the deal. If you live for the Lord and you die for the Lord, you will never know greater fullness in your life. And a lot of you know that already, and yet there still is this struggle. You can look back on, on, on you can look back if the, the cloudiness of your sin and your compromise will let you see through the mist and the fog of where you are right now. If you can look past through that, may God open your eyes to look back on when you fully followed the Lord. To be able to identify the emotions of the joy and the peace and the fullness. That sense of honor. That sense of privilege that was going on. But the problem is, when you move away from that, there's like this fog that just settles in. And yet you be, have a hard time seeing things for the way, way they really are. Kind of like uh, the children of Israel. After they had left Egypt, their kids were being killed, their wives were being taken, they were being used as slaves, they were being beaten and whipped, and all they could think about was what? The spice rack. Oh, the onions, the leeks, the garlic. Man, we could really cook back then, couldn't we? Yeah, but what about our kids? Yeah, but do you remember that spicy thing you used to make? Yeah, but remember they, they, they used to whip you. Yeah, you know, I've got the scars, but the spices were good. I mean, it's like there, there was this cloud where they could not remember how terrible it was. And I think it works in reverse order for the believers that often we cannot remember how good it was. It's like this cloud comes upon us. May the Lord open our eyes to see. Now here's the interesting thing. Jesus answers this, but in uh, Luke 23, verse 2. Let me just turn over there real quick. Luke 23, and verse 2. It says, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Liars. They're liars, but that's no surprise. We already knew they were liars. They're murderous, slanderous liars. So people are going to always find a reason to reject Jesus, even if it's a lie that they've made up in their own head. Verses 27 through 38. The Sadducees, and remember this is the guy... They only believed in the first five books. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in angels and demons. They were kind of the ones, Josephus said, rude, arrogant, and always ready for a fight. Then some of the Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses, of course, what else are they going to say? Because they only believe the five books, right? Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife, and he, he dies without children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Think of the book of Ruth. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died without children. And the second took her as a wife, and he died childless. And the third took her, and in like manner the seven also, and they left no children and died. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, you can almost hear them having a arrogant little snicker here, thinking that they got the Lord. Uh, you've got, we've got you now. In the resurrection, we don't believe in it, but we know you do. Whose wife does she become? For all seven had her as a wife. 
Jesus answered and said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to attain that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Nor can they die anymore, for they are equal to the angels and are the sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised. When he called the Lord, here it is, the God of Abraham, we're talking present tense, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, for he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So they come with this question. He's like, you guys, don't, you don't even get in it. You don't this at all. It's a totally different world. It's going to be lived out differently. You don't understand this. But notice that when Jesus answers them, he answers them from what book of the Bible? Exodus, the burning bush. He, he's like, listen, you think I can't answer you from the five books of Moses? Let's go to the burning bush. And then the Lord says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He doesn't speak of them as being out of existence. He speaks of them as being alive and being present. Remember a couple of weeks ago on Sunday morning, we talked about how all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that even the very word and even the very tense of a word, here it is again. Jesus is actually using the tense of uh, in reference to the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to prove a theological point in the resurrection. So those who don't want, who say, well, you, you know, it's just themes, it's ideas, it's not the very words. I mean, well, Jesus used the very words of even the Old Testament, the tense of a word to describe um, and, and make a theological point about the resurrection. So he says, no, there is a resurrection. And, and you just simply don't seem to understand the scriptures. So let me give you a Bible lesson, guys. And um, this would have really been a, a challenge to them. And, of course, there is a resurrection. You know, the problem that so many um, of the experts of the Word of God is that they don't believe in the Bible. These guys believed in the five books of Moses, but they didn't really believe in all of that. Their theological system usurped. I guarantee you they didn't change their mind when Jesus showed them from the five books of Moses that actually it speaks of a resurrection. Because their theological system said that doesn't exist. There are no angels. There, are no, there is no resurrection. Because they don't trust the word of God, nor they trust in the power of God. I pray that you have a robust belief in the word of God and the power of God and the truthfulness of God. And that it is the final statement for your life and practice. Because this, this is so critical. This is the faith. This is the, that, that tells us how, well, this is the word that tells us how to have faith in, and who to believe in. Verses 39 through 44, we're going to wrap it up here real quick. That Jesus' uh, Jesus's, uh, questions describes about the Christ's lordship. So now he's going to put them um, on the hot seat. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you've spoken well. It's like, well, yeah, okay. So the Sadducees came with it. Now the scribes, primarily Pharisees who believed in the resurrection, said, Good answer. That's because they, they couldn't stand the Sadducees. So, you know, don't, I mean, this is more about them, you know, having ammunition against the Sadducees than it is of affirming Jesus, okay? There's no conversion going on here. 
It's just their theological enemies have just been bested, and they like it. But they didn't want to ask him any more questions. And he said to them, how can they say that the Messiah, the Christ, is the son of David? Now, they would have said that. And David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he then his son? So they didn't understand the virgin birth. They didn't understand that God was going to come in the flesh. They were rejecting him as the son of God. And so he just says, let me ask you a question, since you guys seem to have all the answers. How can David have a son that he calls Lord, he calls Messiah? Have you worked that one out yet, you guys? And for them, of course, they couldn't. But for us, it's easy. We believe that Jesus is a descendant of David, but that he is still God in the flesh. And of course, David is going to call him Lord because he's God. And so the question here is about lordship. They were unwilling to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus or his messianic identity. They rejected them both. They were fighting against the Messiah. I mean, this was unthinkable to them that they could actually stand in resistance against the Messiah, but in reality, this is what they're doing, and they're arguing with him right here. We close in verse 45 through 47, and Jesus warns his disciples about these guys. He says, then in the hearing of all the people, okay, so political correctness, he, didn't, he wasn't aware of it. Then in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes. Watch out for these guys who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues. Can you imagine the chuckles that would have been going on in the crowd? With every one of these statements, I hear laughter among the crowd. And these guys are just feeling smaller and smaller and smaller. And yet they're getting angrier and angrier and more and more bitter. He says, watch out for these guys who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. And his eyes popped up and probably looked at him. It's gracious to him that he's calling them out like this. It's, the, it's God in the flesh speaking. If they were willing, they could have repented right there. They could have fell to their knees and, and just said, you're right, I am a prideful, arrogant man that's after money. And I do rip people off. And I am a fake. I'm a fraud. God have mercy upon me. And he would have had mercy on them right there. But they were caught by their pride. And so they will be those who will receive greater condemnation. Some will receive a stricter judgment than others we find in Scripture. And this group, they're going to have greater judgment. Because they had the law, they were given to the study of the word of God, and they had the Messiah right in front of their face. And they're condemning him and arguing with him. And even when he corrects them and they get their theological argument shattered, they still will not repent. How hard man's heart can be. And I pray that our hearts will remain soft to the Lord. The sad reality of human history is that mankind fights against God. He always fights against God. 
But God is hum- humbles himself and reaches out to stubborn man and seeks to draw him to himself. And I pray that if you have not come to the Lord, you will do that. And if you have come to the Lord, then continue to allow the love of Christ to compel you to live not for yourself, but for him. He is worthy. He created us for that one purpose. And just remember, you're not going to regret having lived full-on reckless abandon for Jesus Christ when you're in heaven. You're going to be so glad that you made that decision. Father, we thank you for your love and your kindness and your word to us. And to be able to have this snapshot of the intensity of the the battle between the religious corrupt leaders of the day and Jesus. Lord, we thank you for it. We can learn so much and glean so much from him and have so much truth given to us. And so, Lord, we, we want to be those that hear you. Kind of when you broke through and you said, this is my beloved son, hear him. Oh, Lord, we hear him. And we want to hear him more. And we want to allow his truth to continue to touch our lives and roll over our hearts and and minds. I just want to give you a chance. Do you need to quit living for yourself, believer? I mean, you got your justification, you got your hurt, you got your pain, you got your, 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 your story of what some pastor, believer, sister, or brother in the Lord did to you. But that's not Jesus. It's not, what did Jesus do to you? that you would not want to live for him? Does his love for you, that he died for you, not compel you? You know. You've walked it out. You have tasted of the Lord. You know his goodness. You've lived full on for the Lord before. But, man, not lately. May you be compelled again by the love of Christ to follow him, to not even resemble on any level these arrogant leaders that we're rejecting Jesus' word at every turn. If you've never come to the Lord, then make that confession. Jesus, I believe you're Lord, and I want to follow you. I am done with doing it my own way. I am going to follow you. He will hear you. He will answer you, and you will be saved. Thank you, Lord, that you are so patient and so kind, that you humbled yourself. You took on human flesh, and you came, and you served us. You served us even all the way to the cross that you might make us clean, that you might redeem us. And it's in your name we pray.